Tennessee State Representative Jody Barrett joins us this week to explain how the proverbial sausage is made in the General Assembly and the difference between public appearances and the private reality of how the special session is likely to unfold next week. We also celebrate a few recent legislative victories, including the excellent work that Representative Barrett and Gary did to protect homeschool families from state-mandated immunization requirements. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. You have to give me a minute on this one. It's all right. It's a good long intro. I don't. I, I don't I, know it yet. I thought you were going to get it so soon that we wouldn't even make it to the chorus. <laughs> <clears throat> really? So I, I'm clueless right now. Okay, hear the lead vocal and tell me if you. I know. It looks like our guest might might. Come on, who who? So who is it? I, I want you to guess. I have no idea. Wow, Gary! I you I'm went down a notch today. <laughs> I was so impressed with the I've things. Been, been doing so well. Oh, all right, Jody, our guest is it Forner? Of course, it's Forner. Oh, the distinctive voice of Lou Grant. I'm sorry. You know. Okay, and the chorus is why I'm bringing this on today. Here we go. Oh wait, that's right. This is a really long first verse. <laughs> well, the song is called Urgent. Urgent oh. emergency, and you know that's what we have, yes. right? We 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 all know we're in an, an urgent, very urgent time. We we must deal with these things right now, says Governor Bill Lee. And what's interesting, Gary, before we introduce our special guest today, is Daniel Horowitz had a fantastic article this week on the Blaze about if we're talking about the urgency of a special session. The urgency that should be driving this is not let's let's make an emergency to take away the rights, the constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens, but let's focus on the urgent need of connecting the dots between pharmaceuticals, vaccines, those who've gotten vaccines leading to autism, autism, that great, I don't know if you saw it in that article, the great research that's been done he to show— He made some incredible connections. Yeah, the ties now between people with autism who are predisposed to gender dysphoria and the number of gender dysphoria shooting incidents, right? So if we're talking about being urgent about this, that is where the urgency is, and to break that cabal apart and get to the real answers— and with all of that, I mean, of course, still no manifesto, still none of those things, no no real evidence or truth behind what actually took place, what the motivations were for the shooting. All that stuff's been hidden. Of course, you know, for the safety of the families in the school, um, I, I, don't, I don't know that it, I would say it's in the name of public safety necessarily, but anyway, and, and you know, and again, before I introduce our guests, I'll just say on that topic of urgent, too. Mm-hmm. We sent something out in our email a couple of weeks ago about uh, the governor's constitutional powers to call a special session in Article 3, Section 9, which states that those powers are during extraordinary occasions. Mm -hmm. And while courts across the country, because that phrase is in several, if not most, state constitutions in terms of these special sessions by governors, courts have, have... purposefully not really address that phrase due to separation of powers, which I think is appropriate. Nonetheless, I don't know that any of us really know legally what the term extraordinary occasions, but I, but I think any reasonable person would say that would typically lend itself to an emergency, something of urgent need that must be addressed right now, something specific. And I, you know, you had an you've had an almost an entire legislature and an entire party now tell this governor we don't see anything urgent there's a lot of things that we can do in the upcoming general session 2024 nonetheless here we go and with us um wait can i add one more thing sure my concern gary is that as more and more states use non-urgent activity or non-urgent justifications for these extraordinary Occasions. Right, special sessions, yeah. then it's going to so dilute the word that pretty soon we'll be having special sessions in all states for anything, and well, the courts will uphold it because they'll look at they'll look at the precedent and say, 
Well, if, you know, a scratch on the back of a dog was urgent, then, of course, this is urgent. We're already there. Uh, Bill Lee called a special session last year. Oh, yeah. At the beginning of a regular session. Ford. Just to, well, no, that was the year before, but just to address education first. Uh, so yeah. he, he called a special session, not for an extraordinary occasion, but to set the legislative scope up right at the beginning of a general session. Um, again, yeah, so I, I think we're way past caring about what an extraordinary occasion is. And so today, before we have our extraordinary occasion upon us on Monday, uh, we have with us uh, State Representative Jody Barrett uh, out of Dixon, Tennessee, right? That's it. Dixon, Dixon, Hickman, and Lewis County. Yeah. The 69th District. And so welcome to the show. We're thankful to have you on. I will say, um, you know, I want to open up by just allowing you to, to talk about your first term a little bit. This is your, this is, so you're going in, well, this will be your first extraordinary session minus the one at the beginning of last session. And this will be coming into 2024, your second legislative session. That's correct. In my opinion, you, you, your first one was, I mean, you came out of the gate swinging. I consider you to be one of the strongest principled conservatives. You ran a lot of legislation that we support, legislation that a lot of folks won't touch, legislation sometimes that the leadership is not crazy about. But interestingly, you were also, I think, named the uh, Republican freshman leader. Is that right? Is that a, the, the right phrase? That's that's correct. Uh, I was elected by my fellow freshmen in the class. Where There were 14 of us newly elected in this last class plus two additional what they call redshirt freshmen, uh, <laughs> folks folks who were appointed to fill a seat and then had to come back and run again to to keep that seat. So huh. 16 of us total. Um, and I think there were five of us vying for that position of, of freshman leader. And, you know, it's it's one of those deals. I didn't even know that that position existed uh, until about two weeks before our, our mm-hmm. caucus meeting. You know, I'll, I'll be honest here. I don't know everything about what's going down. So when I, I learned about it, uh, it's my decision to kind of jump in there was very similar to my decision to run for the seat to begin with. It, and it was, you know, looking at the position itself and what it does and who it represents and deciding, well, I just want to make sure that somebody good is is available and in that spot to be able mm-hmm. to serve the folks and you know when, when we were in our caucus meeting and we're having that vote for freshman leader we had a the opportunity to address our fellow freshmen and, and talk about why we felt like we were the right person for that position and you know first couple of folks got up and kind of talked about their resume and their experience and and uh you know an extremely impressive group of people and i i didn't think i was going to get very far by getting into a uh comparison head to head over yeah. here's what i've accomplished versus what these folks have accomplished so instead i kind of took a different tact and i asked them if they uh if they'd ever seen the lone ranger and uh <laughs> which kind of got some strange looks just like i got just now and um I explained to him, look, I, the Lone Ranger wore the white hat and rode in on the on the white horse and saved the day every every day. I don't need to be the Lone Ranger. I want to be your Tonto. I want to help each one of you be the white hat hero for your district and your folks back home. Mm-hmm. As freshman leader, I'm here to help all of you all be as good as you can possibly be. And I think the message resonated, and I, I was able to win out on that election. I would expect that message to resonate great with politicians. Politicians love to be heroes. <laughs> yes, they all. You definitely appealed to their uh, weaker sensibilities. No question. Good job. Well, Very tactical. It worked out for me. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to give you a little bit of opportunity to talk. I mean, let's just start out by talking about, I mean, your freshman year. And, and I mean, you know, your maybe some of your perceptions on the General Assembly, you know, are, are we – are we as conservative as we think we are? Maybe, uh, or maybe some of your just wins or or losses, you know, this year and what, kind of what you're walking away from. There's a there's a huge win, in my opinion, we just had that we'll get into next, which I'm excited about. But let's just sort of dive into being a a new legislator in the state of Tennessee, billed to be one of the most conservative states in the country. How did that pan out for you this year? Well, I had a little bit of an advantage over some of my fellow freshmen in that I had served as an intern in the legislature before. I didn't know that about you. Yep. 1996. So that'll 
date me right there. We were a hmm. Democrat legislature back Democrat then. Democrat-led right? legislature. So I actually got to see hmm. it operate in Legislative Plaza when the Democrats were in control. I was the intern for the House Calendar and uh, Rules Committee, and it was chaired by Representative Pete Phillips from Shelbyville. But also in that at that time, uh, committee chairmen had suites, so there were three members in that suite. So Representative Larry Miller, who still serves in the legislature mm-hmm. that I'm now a colleague with, was one of my bosses at that same time. So coming in as a freshman representative, I, I had a, a year uh, of one session under my belt uh, to kind of see how the sausage was made from behind the curtain. So there's not a whole lot that was super surprising about the process itself. Um, you know, perhaps a little bit more um, exposure being responsible for the actual seat itself. But um, certainly come, I came into it with a mindset of, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty hardcore conservative Christian person. I homeschool my children, I attend church on a regular basis. I had pretty, pretty solid ideas and principles about where I stood and kind of assumed that I would find a lot of that in the legislature. And to a certain extent, I have. We've got a really good <clears throat> core group of conservative Christian men and women. That is the one thing I've, I've consistently said that the one thing that has surprised me is the number of strong Christian people that are serving in the legislature right now, the fellowship that is had on a regular basis, uh, whether it be Bible studies or just conversations with my fellow members. And, and that has been very reassuring, finding out that a lot of us were are there for the same reasons when it was a lot of the same goals in mind. So, you know, beyond that, you know, it's just like anything else that you're learning to do for the first time, whether it's riding a bike or learning how to swim. You got to find out, you know, jump in there and, and try it and find out and see where the, the barriers are, where the walls are. And, and uh, the only way you can do that is by running into them. And so, as you said, I've, I've ran some stuff that maybe isn't mainstream, ran some, some bills with some election integrity issues and, and uh, some stuff on medical freedom and whatnot that maybe isn't what the – you know, was on front of mind for a lot of folks, but maybe it, what, maybe, is, maybe isn't what other Christians like to talk about too much. <laughs> well, I I think look every every organization, whether it's a legislature, a business, or anything else, every organization has a, a leadership group that's trying to take that organization in, in a certain direction, and it's hard to come in from the bottom of the mailroom and start mm-hmm. and impacting where the leadership is taking everything. So that just takes time. And, uh, you know, a lot of us freshmen came in swinging for the fences and, you know, we swung and we missed a lot, but we hit a couple of of really good balls as well. You know, what will happen though, hopefully is over time, those of us that are, are are really committed to this and and continue to work hard and, and stick by our principles and our ideals, We'll build those relationships and build that trust with people that are in position of power or eventually will, you know, elevate into leadership and have a little bit more influence. And, you know, we'll be able to hopefully continue to have a a strong impact on Tennessee and making life better for all of us. Do you have a sense that, you know, in in some of the the challenges that you ran up against in, in having some conversations around some of these bills and and I think you know you you mentioned it, and we we don't have to get into that here because it's been talked about so much. But the the vote on the three Democrats and all that sort of nonsense, and you you know, so you've taken some some hits and had some challenges from leadership. We had some some bills that were making their way through the House that got killed in the Senate, and I think you had didn't you have a bill pass the floor on the House and not make it through, the, like didn't even I, make it through the, out of committee? I did. I Wait, had, that was 636 maybe? Uh, an which election one? bill. Yeah. yeah, that that bill, that was some heavy lifting in the House as well. Right. I actually had all 24 Democrats vote with me on that bill with about 35 or 36 Republicans. And what that bill did, it was actually something personal to me because I was challenged by the Republican Party and and attempted to be taken off the ballot. And the way that process works is the challenge happens after the filing deadline. And so if the party decides to challenge you and remove you from the ballot and they successfully do that, there's no process for you to to remain on or remain in the race as an independent because it's too late. So let me 
pause for a second. So I didn't know that. When you ran this time, or was it a previous time? This is the first time <clears throat> I've ever run for public office. So what hap- What was the reason? Were they trying to declare that you didn't have bona fides? Right. It was based on bona fide status, based <clears throat> on number of, of votes in a primary election. I did not have three out of the last four primaries where I had voted in a primary election. And so just based on that black and white, uh, I had to go through the process of, of having other people come in and vouch, vouch for me. Vouch for and, you. Right. right. Which was easy enough to do, but it, in a four-way primary – Sure. With with three of us being challenged, there was the potential that one would remain yeah. to run unopposed. And as you note, they wait until after the filing deadline to challenge so that you don't have any recourse once they get you off the ballot. That's right. And that was my main objection is, look, I don't mind if you want to challenge anybody and remove them off the ballot and you don't think that they fit in your party. That's fair. You control your party and what your the bona fides are for who you want to mm-hmm. run. But if you decide that they they can't run in your primary, you shouldn't have the power to stop them from running completely. They should be able to come back and refile or amend their their filing application to run as an independent in the general election. Right. To give you some sort of due process. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And Which so is that's what, what his bill would have allowed. The bill, my okay, bill so. allowed seven additional days for you to refile as an independent. Okay. So catching us. So thank you for that little bunny trail. So it got through the house. It was passed. On the floor. On the floor, past the past the house completely, past the house floor, and waiting and what for happened? waiting for the Senate to take it up, and that's when things got a little bit squirrely with our lieutenant governor, and you know things just started kind of dying. Wait, uh, what's the lieutenant governor? He has a nickname, doesn't it's he? Instagram. Instagram. Uh, wait, there was something like rainbows and uh, uh, sunshine. I can't remember all the things. It's been <laughs> so, a, it's been a while. We've had more controversy since then. Oh Kevin. yeah, that's right. That's true. So things just got a little weird. Uh, around that time period, and certain bills just started kind of getting flushed out of the the committee's system on the Senate side. And so, unfortunately, we we put in a lot of really good work and got that done on the House, and it just, the Senate was not ready to do anything with it. Everything election integrity died. You you had a bill, if again, if I remember right, I don't remember the number, but that would have eliminated early voting centers meaning that you, we would have to return to precinct voting in our counties, right? It was giving counties the option to do that. It wasn't mandating it. it that bill was going to give counties the option to, de- to decide whether or not they wanted to return to that. And there was also a paper ballot portion of that as well. Right. Yeah, to be able to elect to use a, a secure hand-marked paper ballot. Correct. Um, yeah. All, none, none of which, I mean, any of those bills over the last two, three years, however many times they've been run. I mean, they they just don't even make it out of committee. They, mm-hmm. they go nowhere. You know, and it's funny, both of those bills that, that we were just talking about, I firmly believe that had I been able to get them out of subcommittee, that I think I had the votes in full committee to get them to the House floor for a vote. Uh, and again, that's just the nature of this committee system, which is going to lead us into our conversation about the, the special session coming up, is the committee system is set up to challenge this legislation, everybody, every piece of legislation, mm-hmm. so that, in theory, only the best pieces of legislation make it through the process to the House floor. Well, we're about to see that system challenged with this special session in that, yeah, we're still going to have subcommittees. Our speaker has said the subcommittees are still going to be opened up, but the rules are completely different <laughs> in a special session than they are during regular session. So things just happen much faster it's a much more streamlined process and things kind of happen really quick and it makes it difficult to slow things down and challenge certain aspects of a bill or seek any type of changes. So so can you can you elaborate a little bit what rules in particular make it faster and harder to kind of put the reins on? Sure. So so here's the the side by side comparison of how a bill gets to the house floor during a regular session versus special session. During regular session, it may take four weeks to maybe a couple of months, depending mm-hmm. upon you know what you end up having to, to go through to get it there. But a bill gets filed, and then it's on the sponsors. It's their responsibility to have that, that bill set to be heard in a, in a committee. The committee doesn't call it for mm-hmm. you, so you still have to set it on a date for it to be heard. It's going to go to a subcommittee first. 
You have to get the votes to get it out of subcommittee. Sometimes that may take a couple of, of tries. You may mm-hmm. have to go back and have a couple of changes made to it, a couple of amendments. You may have to work out some agreements with some special interest groups or other right. folks that, that don't agree in totality with what you're trying to do. And then you get to the full committee and you may have to start that process all over again and have some other changes. So you're talking four to six weeks, really, for a bill to get through the, the committee process during a regular, regular. session. But in special... In a special session, we suspend the regular House rules and we go into what's called flow motion, which means a bill could be filed on Monday or what the, fly, the filing deadline, I believe, is Friday for this special session. So a bill can be filed on Friday. We can call session to order on Monday. Which includes all the caption bills, by the way. <laughs> of course. <Right. laughs> call Big se- empty. <laughs> call session to order on Monday. Committees will meet on Tuesday. <clears throat> and that... A bill that starts from scratch can be back on the House floor by Thursday or Friday to be voted on on the House floor. That, this is the urgency that we were talking That's about. That's right. Yeah. There, cause, it's cause it's important we take away these constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens. So the, the, the big challenge in all of that is where do the people have an opportunity to come in and really mm-hmm. dig into the meat of, of the language that's in these bills? That has already <laughs> been written, by the way. These these bills aren't being crafted during the special session, are they? No, many of them are, are have been, you know, worked on over the summer, last couple of months when since folks knew that there was a special session coming. So, but that doesn't mean that they've been filed and open to the, right, public, to the public for all of us to see, of and, and even to the other members. So, or they haven't been slapped on as as an amendment to the caption yet. Oh well, which, that's that's which true will too. Happen. So. What's really going to be missing in this special session process is the opportunity for folks to ask to be heard in committees to to come in and testify. And then where the, where the real work happens is that week in between the day that you present your bill to a subcommittee mm-hmm. and you get your initial questions from the members of that subcommittee and you say, you know what, you're right. There's a couple of things I need to look at on here. Let me go work on it and I'll come back to you. Well, in that week in between, you're talking to those members, you're talking to the lobbyists or whoever it is that that has questions about that bill, and you're working on that language to fine tune it so that when you come back a week later, you have something that everybody's kind of had some input into and feel comfortable with. Well, that's not going to happen in a special session. It's going to be, here it is, like it or leave it. And we're most likely going to feel uncomfortable with it. Right. And that's honestly, that's been my objection to the special session. I think you you guys know I wrote a letter to the governor in June yep. expressing my concern about the, about, about the uh, session, that I didn't think this was the right way to go about things. And when I went to meet with the governor with our small group that we had, I think there were five of us in that group, I, I expressed it again in person that I just didn't think this was the right way for us to tackle big important issues like gun control and red flag laws and even mental health. The, these these issues are so complex. They're not new. These, so what, I'm, I'm curious, and I think our audience would like to know, what was the governor's reaction when you had this meeting? I think the governor expected what I was going to say. Um, Did he have I, a prepared answer? No, not really. I mean, in that, in that meeting... I think the governor was more of the mindset of and wanting to express to us that, look, I said I was going to do this. I gave my word that I was going to call session. And to I'm, whom? That I don't know. To the people? He gave his word? He, he didn't ask us for our input? But he, he, <laughs> he, said, he said basically, look, I said I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it. And I know other people are not going to be happy about it, whether it's Democrats or the left or whoever. <clears throat> But I don't care. I think this is the right thing. So in his mind, he thinks he's doing the right wow. thing by by calling us in to address this. You know, many of us have expressed our concerns not only about the the process itself, but about the the safety of the general public with with some of the stuff that's been out in the news about potential protests and things of that nature. Even today, there was a tweet from yeah. Metro but- Nashville. Uh, police department encouraging people that work in downtown Nashville to work from home next week. Okay, so let's just stop. And as Gary says, let's camp there for a minute. Consider the irony, right? The governor has been pushing this special session 
under a theory of protecting the public, right? Making the public safer from what he believes to be the danger. And we have been warning all summer long about the actual physical threats of violence and danger that this is going to produce. And lo and behold, we are less than a week away, when we're recording this, less than a week away from the opening of this special session, and Metro Police have admitted and, and told people to stay home because of the potential danger, violence. Correct. And that still is insufficient to get the governor off his word that he's given to whomever. Look, I, I understand the angle that he's coming from, and, and that is— mm, Everybody and, has an angle. <laughs> well, look, as, as men, we don't necessarily like being told what to do, right? So we don't like—the more somebody tells us that we shouldn't do something, we, we sometimes tend to dig in and say, well, watch me. Yeah, <laughs> but except with our governor, he seems to do what Bill Gates wants him to do. He seems to do what Vanderbilt wants him to do. He just doesn't do what the people who elected him want him to do. And and that and I think that look I think for me, like that's the key because what we hear from the governor a lot and I guess you know he he's not wrong in saying I'm the governor of the entire state I represent all the people of the state okay yes functionally true that you're right you you are the executive of the state however you have a a base of people that elected you on a certain pretense that you would defend and promote certain liberties and issues that are important to your voter base. And so when I'm looking at the governor and some of his actions, and and especially this call for a special session, which I think has been made clear by the entire party, is way outside the scope of what you would consider issue-driven by your voter mm-hmm. base. It's it's lunacy, in my opinion. Yep. Um, it, is, it is an absolute slap in the face to every vote that was cast for Bill Lee. And that's, you know, so that that's the dichotomy I see is a, is a guy trying to use the excuse, well, I represent everybody and we have to, he said, he said it on the news last week, we have to quote, do something. You know, yeah. that that's the mantra. We have to do something. And I'm not really sure what that means exactly. I don't know that, I don't know that the folks going into the legislature next week know exactly what that means, but by golly, we're going to do something. First, do no harm, though. So before we we're, we're going to we can can hang out on the special session for the rest of the time. And we'll yeah. we'll we will in there and get into more meat around that and some of the the ideas that have been proposed. But before we do that, I do want to make sure I'd be remiss if one of the reasons I wanted you on today is because I do want people to know I do want to celebrate this win. I want to celebrate you. I want to celebrate homeschool folks that that got engaged and I, and I want to celebrate the fact that look I'm going to acknowledge here and you know Tennessee stands Gary humble whatever you think about us here like we don't do this often and I think we're justified in not celebrating our government often we I think our government oftentimes uh, is is not defending um, our liberties like we would like to see even here in the state of Tennessee however that's not always true and in this particular case dealing with the folks by the way, I was I was corrected in speaking with Mr. Nathan James. He he does not work for the Tennessee Department of Education. He works for the State Board of Education. That was two different a, things. That is a very <clears throat> key nuance. So yes. I, I I would I will say that dealing with with these staff folks at the State Board of Education has been incredibly pleasant. Has almost in some way renewed my hope for for government. It it it. Actually, has taught me and shown me that there are some really great people that work on staff in some of these administrations that really love what they do and take their jobs in representing the people of Tennessee or doing the work of the people of Tennessee very seriously. And I'll let you explain the bill, but this has to do with HB 252 that you sponsored and were able to get passed that removed a requirement for homeschool families to be subject to report their immunization status uh, through the umbrella school, but also ultimately to the state. The state required this information. And um, of course, we reported that. You came on a live video. That stirred the pot and went in a direction that I didn't expect. Right. But kind of talk about that a little bit. Right. I, I don't think either one of us expected the <laughs> that to come off the rails the way it did. So House Bill 252 was important. Uh, you know, I'm a homeschool dad, raised three of our kids. My wife, bless her, 
has been their teacher. Uh, I've got one that's graduated college, one that's a sophomore in college, and we still have a 12-year-old at home. So I can uh, explain how that happened, but that's for a different podcast. And so the rule in Tennessee or the law in Tennessee prior to this bill passing uh, required uh, individual or independent homeschool students that were umbrelling under their local uh, LEA or their director of schools to report their immunization records to their director of schools prior to August 1st, I think, every year. And so we wanted to remove that requirement because those those children are not attending school. They're not going to classes. They are under the definition of the law in Tennessee. They take classes at home taught by a parent and therefore, they don't they don't need to be subject to releasing this private uh, medical information to the government, and so we set about writing a bill to change that. And in the course of that, we we wanted to to address all of the issues at one time. And one of the things that we did is we ended up having to change the definition of what a school is, because under the definition of, uh, in the state code. I think it was what forty nine six five thousand one TCA forty nine six five thousand one gives the commissioner of health the authority to re- make the list of required immunizations for all children who attend a mm-hmm. school in Tennessee <clears throat> with a definition of what school is nursery daycare the whole nine yards. Well, our bill changed what that definition was to expressly remove homeschool from that definition. Well, when we got that passed. This bill ended up that was originally directed at independent homeschoolers suddenly had a much broader definition and a much broader impact. And that now what happened that, that Gary and I discovered, uh, and, and I appreciate you and your people with Tennessee Stands bringing this to our attention, uh, is that the rules that came out after right. uh, over rules. the summer when when uh, government ops is meeting and, and the Department of Education is putting their rules in place and the, and the Commissioner of Health is putting out there what uh, immunizations are required, homeschool students that were umbrelling under a church-related school, they're still homeschool, but they're just sending their grades and their attendance yep. records yep. somewhere else. They were still being required under the law, under the rule, under the rule. Uh-huh. to report their immunization records to their church-related umbrella. Yep. Which, by the way, also, I, and I, I could be wrong, but I believe, and I don't know the, the correct number or statistic, but I believe that homeschool students who umbrella under a church-related school are by far the great majority of homeschool students in the state of Tennessee, so, I think. <clears throat> so my wife and I have coached homeschool cross country and track and field uh, with Dixon Christian Academy for 10 plus years now, almost all of our students umbrella under a church related school, Um, like 99.999%. And I think that's, that's generally the case across the state. And so with this rule being implemented, we had to go back and have everybody go take another look at that definition and, and, get a different interpretation. So now you get lawyers involved and everybody's trying to, to say, well, what's the definition of is? Because so, rules are being made based on how these administrative departments are interpreting the law. Exactly right. And so, uh, you know, you reached out and then I was also able to get uh, copied in on a, on a string of emails. And so I was able to put my interpretation of what my legislative intent was for that bill and why we changed the definition of what a school is to exclude homeschool. And that helped, I think, push the uh, Department of Education or or the the State Board of Education in understanding and agreeing with us that, no, kids that are homeschooled, regardless of where they're sending their grades and their uh, attendance records, are not subject to requirements to submit their immunization records. So it was a big win for freedom, for sure. Yeah, so when we talked about that, that was still an open issue. How is is it resolved now in the rules, or has there been a letter suggesting that the rules need to be changed? Or the the resolution now is that they're they've acknowledged that the rule does need to be changed, and the rule will be changed. But there's a process to do that. Right. So as it implies, uh, as it affects folks today, um, the Tennessee Department of Education now will be issuing guidance as to how to enforce that rule correctly. So. Okay. Even though the the rule technically has not been amended yet, 
the department is issuing guidance to follow the rule as the law is correctly interpreted per the intent. So, And one of the largest right. umbrella programs in the state, if not the largest umbrella program in the state, has already been notified by, by the, the state of Tennessee, by the department. That, that they don't have to collect. they don't right. have to do that. So correct. the state is already being proactive Good. in putting that out, and, and there is a subsequent uh, coming rule change. So, well, that's really good news because <clears throat> we're used to uh, <laughs> we're used to talking about so much bad news around here. Yeah. It's, it's really encouraging to hear a little bit of. Look, I mean, the thing is, oh, there's a few fronts. One, I want to say to everybody that listens to this podcast, Representative Barrett, man, really appreciate. I mean, to watch a guy on because so many will pass a law, yay, pat me on the back, I want and move on. But man, you you just you cared about the issue and you made sure that what was supposed to happen happened, that the intent behind actually protecting homeschool families was done and secured. And and I yeah, I agree with you. There's no question that your work in reaching out and giving your legislative intent and working with the department definitely I think won them over in terms of getting this done. And and I will say getting it done incredibly quickly, which shocked I'm sh- I, I sit here still really shocked know, that it's fixed. I, <clears throat> the fact that I'm totally sitting here shocked. now had no idea until we sat in the <laughs> studio today that it was fixed. It happened in between our last podcast. And Jeez. so, and I, I was prepared to go back in the spring and, and write new legislation to try to, to fix this loophole. Uh, so I'm very grateful to the department as mm-hmm. well. Uh, both departments, Absolutely. health and education, to that to work with us and well, getting not this, health, just education for it, me. But go ahead, getting this <laughs> fixed as quickly as possible, uh, because again, the thing that nobody wants, particularly this time of year when school's starting back, is uncertainty. Everybody just wants to to know, hey, look, tell me what I have to do, uh, and I'll do it. That's the way most Tennesseans are, and so. Honestly, our video caused some uncertainty, mm-hmm. uh, and so I'm grateful to everybody involved that we were able to to get that resolved as quickly as possible, so that it didn't drag out into the fall and and possibly even into the spring. Hundred percent. This issue for me personally, like it's 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 how government is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Like this was truly government working on behalf of the people and it it was it was honestly like it was refresh all of the exchanges phone calls emails like were just and the outcome were incredibly refreshing to me personally because didn't you say even in your dialogue via email with the attorneys yeah either at the Again, I don't know, the Department this, of Education? This or the State, State Board of Education. State Board. You yeah. said that they were very respectful and thorough and they weren't like... 100%. Yeah. So that's... Want, I'm, want I'm very, shocked. It's very just, much wanting to engage. Yeah. This, is, well, this and, is so different than what we're accustomed to. Well, and again, I'll say this as as a representative and, and somebody who works for the state now. Sure, we all have bad experiences with, with state employee that maybe didn't act like they cared as much about our issue as we do. But I have, <laughs> That's true. I have found... That's a lot true, <laughs> unfortunately. I have found that there are a tremendous number of outstanding people, individual people doing great work in the state that we're very fortunate to have, which I think is also why our our General Assembly was so uh, adamant this last session with the budget of trying to make sure that we were raising compensation and and keeping good people employed because it's becoming more and more competitive to keep those folks. So there's, there's no question having good people in those seats matters. A hundred percent. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So in, in, in our sort of last segment here, we, we dove into the special session already a little bit, but I want to, I want to just dive in a little bit more. This, this will be airing. This will be our, our final podcast before the special session commences, uh, on Monday, August 21st. And, um, Again, I'm just, you, you can answer it how you want, but my hope is what, I, what I'm still asking for from every representative who, who said, who have told me multiple times this, is, this was their intention. I, I think this thing needs to be adjourned immediately. From what I can perceive right now, I don't, where once maybe there was a, a, a taste for that, it, it doesn't seem to me like there's enough consensus around that to, to have a chance but what what are you hearing what are you sensing in terms of the potential of, of showing up and immediately adjourning this session at least in the house I, I don't think the Senate would ever consider that but at least in the house 
So I, I would say that no, that interest in, in making that, that motion and following through with that has changed since the proclamation came out, since the call came out. Prior to the, the call actually being issued, I think there was very strong sentiment among the Republicans in the House, especially, um, to make a motion to adjourn and support that motion. Um, because Why? we just, I, I don't understand. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but sure. What changed before the proclamation and after the proclamation other than political pressure? Well, I think, I think the fact that, that when the proclamation came out and it did not have certain things in it that were originally stated that were going to be in, uh, the fact that it was so narrowly tailored to keep us, uh, to give us the ability to work in some areas of mental health without having to defend off Second Amendment attacks, uh, gave some people some solace that hey, we can actually get some some decent things done with this session. That being said, I think there's still folks out there that would support a motion to adjourn. And I've made it clear to my leadership that if a motion is made, I'm going to have to vote for it because the people in my district don't want me to have anything to do with this session. Can you not make that motion? I could make that motion. Um, well, and, on, and on that point, as you answer that, is it – what are the rules? I was having a conversation with someone about this the other day, and I'm not clear. Can in the conversation I had, it was understood that – Anyone at any time on the floor could make a motion to adjourn. Is that, is that, that true? That's correct. There, there's no limit as to when or how that can be made. And it has to be voted on. Um, and so, m- multiple times? Can it keep happening at po- different points? Potentially. Potentially. So, And the speaker has to give it a vote. That's right. So here's the other side of it. So a discussion about <clears throat> adjournment, is, and that's kind of been the leading the drumbeat sure. Uh, up until the proclamation came out. And and look, I understand leadership on uh, for the Republicans in the House have, I think, the best intentions. They're, they're looking at this going, look, the people, uh, the governor's called us back. The people want to see something done. We think that there's a handful of things that we can do that are not Second Amendment related that will be beneficial and help. I have a bill myself that I, I'm going to file probably tomorrow. Uh, we can talk about that in a second. But the people at home still see this for what it is, and, and that's what you talked about at the very beginning, is is this truly an extraordinary circumstance? Are we truly dealing with an emergent situation that has to be acted on now versus January when we can go through a full legislative process and, and give all of these bills and ideas the full spectrum of voices to be lent <clears throat> to them so that when we do get to the floor, we have something that, that's actually been vetted by the entire legislative body and the people as a whole. So, Curious to hear real quick before we about your, your bill. So what, so the bill that you're going to file? The bill I'm going to file, and I have a Senate sponsor ready to go now as well. So Metro National Public Schools has decided that they do not want to accept the money for SROs. For SROs, that's, that's uh, right. I think $5.2 million or something like that they turned down for They S- didn't change that, though. I, th- I thought I saw a news they're, report come out that they were going to do something. They're kicking it around, but they still have not accepted the accepted money. Accepted the money. Okay. So my bill would say that any public school system in the state of Tennessee or any public school building in the state of Tennessee that has not been provided an SRO, any employee of that building – that has an enhanced carry permit can legally carry on that property. Like it. Yeah, so that's good. if the if the system is not going to provide law enforcement and armed security for the people, their own employees and the kids in those buildings, then the people ought to be able to defend themselves. That wouldn't be a uh, Senator Paul Bailey bill in the Senate, would it? That would be Senator Joey Hensley is going to be okay. my oh, sponsor for that. Awesome. Because uh, last year, uh, in last session, uh, Senator uh, Chairman Bailey had had a bill that would have allowed uh, carry for school employees. Uh, That's campus. right. And, and uh, on the House side, I believe Ryan Williams, Representative Ryan Williams, was the sponsor of that. And and he's the first person I reached out to before I proceeded with with my bill. Is he supportive? He is supportive. I did not want to step on any toes because that bill's still out there. Mm-hmm. It just got rolled to this session. to right. the spring. Right. So that's still going to come up in debate, hopefully next next session. But I didn't want Representative Williams to think that I was coming in to to take over that 
issue. Yeah, yours is a little narrow. It a is. Little more it's strictly narrow. regarding these SROs and whether or not the, the, a system is going to decide that they don't want an SRO in their school. That's fine. You can make that choice. We're not going to mandate it that you do that. But here's an option for the people that work there. If they have their enhanced carry permit, then they can carry in and protect themselves and their children. So totally supportive of that bill. Uh, still would like to see you motion to adjourn. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. I'm just, just, well, I'll tell you last night, putting that out there. Last night I had a town hall in Hohenwald in Lewis County. And there was a group of folks there that wanted us to, instead of adjourn, because if we adjourn, the governor can just call us right back. Right. They want us to recess, a motion to recess to a date certain. So if there's a motion to recess until January 9th, then the session's still open, but no business is taking place until we come back until the 9th, which gives us all more time to kind of— It takes away the governor's ability to call. Man, that's smart. I like it. So it's playing chess. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I don't know where that's going to go. We'll see. Um, I'm sure there'll be discussion among— uh, different folks on the conservative side of the aisle is the, whether or not that's the right way to go. Are those Again, motions just a majority or is it super majority to pass those? Mm. So that's the difference between a motion to adjourn and a motion to recess. A motion to adjourn requires two thirds. Motion to recess only requires a simple majority. Ooh, even better. Even better. Better result and easier to pass. Ooh, I like I like this. I like this. I'm liking this okay. conversation. Interesting. That's good. Okay. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes and how those conversations go. You know, anytime uh, you you don't want to be the guy that's running alone, uh, streaking to the quad, right? You want to make sure you have people behind you that are going to stand with you when you do something like that. So we'll see how those conversations go and, and see what uh, leadership has in store. We're, we're going to have some meetings in, over the course of the next several days um, that I think will kind of reveal to the rest of the of the membership exactly what uh, to expect here in the, when we meet on Monday. So Final thing I wanted to bring up on the special session as we come to a close um this is this is an issue that kevin and i talked about went back and forth quite a bit over the last week as well as some of our friends nationally like andy roth of the state freedom caucus network and and some other folks that are paying attention you know the procl the, the official proclamation is like an 18 point proclamation on the session but then the governor's office put also put out a more concise press release that if i remember right it was seven or eight points but I think, was it number two? I think it was number two mm -hmm. on that press release was a call to ask for a waiver, ask for a waiver to use Medicaid dollars uh, in mental health. And, and you're right. It wasn't stated the same way in the proclamation as it was in the press in release. In the press release. Yeah. The, the press release was, was more noticeable, I guess. The Correct. proclamation was sort of like, I'm not sure what that means. Yeah. The press release actually had some detail. Like, we're going to apply to the federal government yes. to get more money for Medicaid. That's right. To expand Medicaid and offerings and for mental health specifically. And actually, I'm not even sure if it's more money. I actually think it's it's a waiver it's, it doesn't increase the pot, but it's a waiver to divert Medicaid funds that the state is receiving into mental health services. Correct. And so what, what, I, what I would just like to submit and maybe hear you know, some comment on is I, I think my concern, a lot of folks, folks are looking at this nationally. I mean, I, I get that the governor, so we're, we're trying to address mental health. And, you know, I, I'm someone who would love to figure out a way to reject every dollar from the federal government. Um, now, I get when 40 percent of your state's budget is federal money, you can't do that uh, yet, at least. But I think with what we see happening nationally, my belief and Kevin's belief that I, I'm not – though we would love to see a Republican in the White House in 2024, mm -hmm. not, not so sure we're going to have that with our current elections as they are across the country. Nope. So, I, we, <clears throat> you know, our salvation is in the state. Uh, right. And so, which is why. He doesn't mean our ultimate salvation. No, of he course. He means our political salvation. Political, 100%. Thank, term thank of you. Art. Term of art. <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you for that. So, you know, and for me personally, I mean, any proposal at all that in any way, shape, or form is a, a greater expenditure of federal dollars, but especially in something. So we're, you know, in my mind, we're trying to address this problem with mental health, which 
personally, we don't have time to get into it. I believe it's a Trojan horse into this entire conversation. There's no question. Yes, our entire society is losing its mind. But nonetheless, so now we're going to address that with federal money. Man, I have I, I have a, a great deal of concern with that because of the restrictions on liberty that oftentimes come with that federal money. Always strings attached. Like in 2021, when we had a special session to keep people from getting fired for COVID, the General Assembly passed that, but of course exempted all of health care because of CMS and all federal contractors because of the mandates that were coming from the federal government for the risk of losing what? Federal funding. And, and I think we're so we're we've not learned that lesson and we're coming into another special session again trying to fix a problem with federal dollars. Can you can you speak to that for a moment? Sure. Well, look, I think Speaker Sexton has kind of touched on this, I guess, loss of a love affair with federal dollars and talking about the Department of Education, Education which I which I greatly appreciated. And he and I are, have had that. great conversations <clears throat> about that. We're on the same page. I, I volunteered to run that bill for him when he's ready to do that. Um, so having said that, I think there is a, a certain hesitation from the conservative or the Republican majority of getting in bed even further with the federal government. That being said, one of the questions I had for the governor when we met one-on-one is how much money are you willing to spend on this mental health issue? And I'm using air quotes here mm-hmm. for those that are, that can't see the mind. The mind. <laughs> and so... Because the problem is is so multifaceted, right? We have four regional mental health hospitals in Tennessee. We have only 570 beds for the entire state that we own and operate. We have some other facilities that we contract out to, but 570 beds is what we have for mental health hospitals. And so I can tell you this story from uh, – a personal uh, experience with somebody that works for me whose husband had a, a mental health issue about four years ago uh, who woke up in the middle of the night about two o'clock in the morning, no previous symptoms of any issue whatsoever. But <clears throat> at two o'clock in the morning, he was convinced that he needed to go get in his truck and drive to the next town over and stop a train with his bare hands and led the police officers on a chase through the town at 100 miles an hour, parked his truck on the railroad tracks, got out in the dark of night holding a rock. And like something from a movie, the police officer had to tackle him out from in front of the train 50 yards before it ran into his truck and destroyed it and caused a big issue. Mm -hmm. Well, here's what happened. They put him in a patrol car. They took him to the emergency room. Uh, there in that county, rural county. The emergency room says he needs to go to the mental health center. So they put him back in the patrol car at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, whatever this is, and drive him to Nashville to the mental health center. Waits till sometime mid-morning. They get a doctor to come in and talk to him. He sits there throughout the day. And finally they say, here's some medicine. You need to take this. And when you get home, make an appointment to go see somebody at Centerstone or one of you know one of your local mental health companies there. And at midnight, they call the police department that dropped him off and say, "Hey, you need to come get this guy." They don't call his family or his mother or or his wife, uh, and so they drive back up there and take him back to the emergency room. And then they call his wife from that <clears throat> emergency room, say, "Hey, you can come get your husband now." And all they did was, it, it, it's like something from the cartoons, take two of these and call me in the morning. So I say all that to say this, that if we're not willing to start really investing in infrastructure, and, and infrastructure is not just facilities, it's people, it's nurses, it's, it's medical professionals, mental health professionals, all of those things, then this, you know, fixing mental health is, is a fool's errand. And then beyond all that, when we're talking about what really started all this discussion was the the shooting at Covenant School. Well, all we've been talking about since that happened is the how it was done, what tool was used to commit that crime and that tragedy instead of the why. Right. Why did somebody get to the point where they felt that that was okay for them to go do that? And and on that point— I really want to state 
because it's summarized so succinctly in important information what Daniel Horowitz said in his yeah. in his piece this week. <clears throat> so I'm quoting from a Blaze piece by um, author Daniel Horowitz. <clears throat> he says, ironically, this session is being pitched as an emergency driven by the Covenant Massacre. But if we're going to respond based on that incident, shouldn't we get a better, better understanding of what caused it? Bill Lee still has not ordered state law enforcement to publicly release the manifesto of the Nashville shooter so we can understand the background of the killer before we, before we respond with a legislative solution violating due process. What we do know, however, is that altering females with testosterone has correlated with shocking increases in violence, according to several studies. And we also know that there is a strong correlation with autistic children being vulnerable to gravitating toward their toward the strategic grooming of the transgender agenda. The Covenant shooter, a female, was reportedly autistic and transitioned to a male. A 2020 University of Cambridge study with a large sample size found that those suffering from gender dysphoria had up to a 12-fold increased risk of autism. Another study from the Netherlands found that 20% of those identified as having gender dysphoria were also diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. That is not normal. Clearly, those with neurodevelopmental and psychiatric disorders are more vulnerable, not surprisingly, to getting roped into the mental illness of gender dysphoria. The medical profession, particularly the mental health profession, grooms these children into validating the disorder and then mutilates their bodies rather than giving them proper neuropsychiatric care. So, he concludes, if there is an emergency to deal with, gun violence built on the circumstances of the Covenant shooting, it should revolve around investigating why in the world autism has spiked from 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 36, why transgenderism is spiking alongside it, and how it is strongly associated with suicide and homicide. Does it really take a genius to figure out that taking thousands of teens especially those already with mental illness and spinning them up with hormones is not only a death sentence to kids, but is dangerous for society as a whole. Well, there's a whole lot of logic there that, uh, is <laughs> that you can't always apply to, uh, illogical folks. So it's hard to have rational conversations with people who are, are behaving irrationally. And, but and, I would expect our legislatures to act rationally. I'm not sure. expecting to apply that rationality to a person with mental illness, but I'm concerned that our legislators are not acting rationally in how they respond to this. Well, we, well, and I would say, yes, I, I don't think our governor more so is responding rationally by calling the special session, and I don't think the legislators have an opportunity to rationally address this issue in a special session. Mm -hmm. And so, and and I and I would also say to close that loop. So here, everything is being said here, and so, you know, if 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 and I and I think it is if mental. If mental health is indeed an issue, we need to address, and we need infrastructure, and we need all these things in the state of Tennessee. My my hope would be is to see what we can do with state dollars and take care of our people in our state and use faith based organizations and and just the whole gamut of what we can do to address this issue without introducing more federal expenditures and more federal regulation into our state that I think more often than not removes liberty from the people and removes the ability of the legislature and at the state level to protect the liberty of the people. Um, man, it was really great to have you on. Um, I, I know you're a busy guy. I know you had a, a, an event last night. You got a Reagan Day dinner tonight, and I know things are nonstop for you. So uh, we appreciate, I know our listeners very much appreciate you mm -hmm. coming on and all the work that you've done this year. And um, look look forward to your continued work in the in the legislature. Well, I, I just want to close on this one thing. I, I kind of relayed this last night and, and want to share it with your listeners as well. There's no silver bullet to fix these issues, right? These are multifaceted issues that that's going to take a holistic approach. And that's part of the issue that I have with the, the trying to do this in a special session is that there's just so much to tackle here. It's hard to do in a short setting. But one thing that, that I, that I want to be very cautious about is, is I think there's a lot of well-intentioned work going on and, and discussions being had about mental health and things that we can do um, you know, one of the discussions about uh, involuntary committals and, and making that that process a little bit better. And I, I told this crowd last night, 
when we make these rules and we vote on these these laws, we're voting on them at a period in time that we, in our minds, think is not going to change, right? We're in charge. The Republicans are in charge. And it's always going to be that way. And we're responsible. We're not going to abuse this power. Well, who are we going to start let making the decisions as to who's mentally incompetent or who's having a mental health issue and who isn't? What's crazy and what's not? For instance, I believe that a man was born of a virgin and died on a cross and rose three days later and lived and then rose into heaven to sit by God's side. That's crazy to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And if those people become the yep. folks in power, mm-hmm. then we've just created a, an avenue for them to take our guns from all of us. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to be very careful and have you know long thought out vigilant conversations about what the potential ramifications are down the road. That is a fantastic warning that we should heed. Amen. Thanks, Jody. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit tennesseestands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it.